You are listening to the Science of Nutrition. When you start down the road where belief and magic replace evidence and science, you end up in a place you don't want to be. What's happening is that there's a globalization of illness occurring, that people are starting to eat like us and live like us and die like us. Your child will live a life 10 years younger than you because of the landscape of food that we've built around them. We live in a world shaped by food, and then if we realize that, we can use food as a really powerful tool to shape the world differently. Welcome back, Carrie. Thank you. Good to be here. So today's topic uh, will be pregnancy and nutrition, and we might get into a little bit of epigenetics. Nutrition and pregnancy, I think, is like, it's a really, really big field, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions still surrounding it. But before we get to the whole pregnancy thing, I wanted to talk about a little bit about nutrition before you get pregnant. And I remember like four years ago, back in 2008, I was listening to um, NPR. It was the Diane Ream show. I don't know if you're familiar with that show. I, yeah. It's an excellent show. If I can, I, I highly recommend it if you listen to NPR. It's one of the better NPR shows. But she had Dr. Walter Willett on. Yes. And I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's, oh, very. <laughs> he's a pretty big name in kind of the uh, nutrition research field. And he had just written a book called um, The Fertility Diet. I have that book. Oh, I you bought have it? it and just started reading it, yes. <laughs> you bought it recently? Yeah, I got it because uh, fertility nutrition specifically, not even just preconception nutrition, but fertility nutrition is kind of a new interest of mine, and I'm yeah. helping uh, one of my former instructors teach a class on it. I, I kind of thought it was fascinating because he, he explains a little bit about how your diet can actually influence one's fertility, and I had never even even thought that nutrition could be influential on like things like ovulation and implantation Mm -hmm. but I remember listening back to the show it was just kind of it was just kind of recommendations for a diet you know just kind of like what you and I would consider a normal healthy diet you Mm -hmm. know just kind of like avoid trans fats um, eat a lot of vegetables get a fair amount of physical activity try to be in a normal weight you don't want to be severely underweight or severely overweight that'll influence fertility but one thing i thought was interesting was that will it and i think most of this information was drawn from the nurses health study yes which anyone who's in the public health field will be very familiar with that study but it was interesting how he he recommends replacing things like skim milk for full fat whole milk or low fat yogurt with you know like the full creamy yogurt i know that goes contrary to what so many people say i've also ironically i just slightly separate from that i've seen some recent recommendations that there's a component in whole milk dairy that can be helpful for type 2 diabetes so it's just kind of interesting that you're seeing this pop up kind of here and there you've written recently um a series of of posts on your your own blog that I think, if I may say so, are really great, really great posts. But you talk a little bit about things like healthy weight and and kind of what to eat before you maybe even are thinking about conceiving. So what what would you recommend in that area? Yeah, I think as we talked about before we started recording, in an ideal perfect Mm -hmm. world when people decide to 
produce a child, they would plan for it and, you know, become as healthy as possible. And I think this is, it's particularly true for the woman, but I think men can benefit by being healthy because you are providing half of the DNA. Of course. But for a woman, I think the key, the key is to be eating, you know, not an unusual diet, but like a normal healthy diet, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, good sources of protein, you know, minimizing junk food, processed foods, getting enough calories, not too much, and just, you know, a basic healthy diet. And the idea for that is that when you go into conception that your, nu- your stores of your nutrients are optimal. And then also you want to be at a, at a healthy weight, and that doesn't have to mean really thin. A woman who's just just what we call overweight, it may not be an issue, but I think as you get into obesity, and especially as you go further into morbid obesity, that's where you're more likely to see some problems. And some of that is just from the excess body weight itself. Some of it can be because fat tissue is not just a storage depot. It is metabolically active, and that's where you get some issues with hormones. And that's one reason why, when you talk about things like the fertility diet, it's not for all types of infertility. I mean, if a woman has blocked fallopian tubes, you're not gonna be able to eat your way out of that. Um, But when a woman is having trouble ovulating, it may be hormonal in nature, and sometimes optimizing nutrition and getting to a healthier body weight can help normalize some of the hormonal imbalances. But, you know, a key factor with you know, preconception and nutrition is there are certain windows of development that are really crucial. And one of them is the first 21 days after conception occurs. And a lot of women aren't going to realize they're pregnant during yeah, that that's, time. That's before you even, before it'll show up on the pregnancy test pretty much, right? Exactly. I mean, yes, some women are so in tune with what's going on in their bodies and they just know. I mean, it happens. But for the most part, and I think especially if you're not trying, if it's an unexpected pregnancy that may not even be on your radar, you wouldn't notice. But um, in pregnancy, most of the organ development happens in the first half of the pregnancy, and there's a lot of it that happens right at the beginning. And one key thing is the neural tube, which is the precursor for the spinal column. That's pretty much set by day 21. And one of the nutrients that it really relies on is folic acid. So if a woman doesn't eat enough folic acid, her body stores of folic acid are low, and she gets pregnant, and by the time she realizes she's pregnant, it's really too late to bump up those levels. Right. I think I remember um, we were in Rosenfeld's class, and we were discussing a little bit about that's one of the big reasons why folic acid was, I don't know if it was like a government mandate or if it was just like a strong recommendation to the food industry, okay, we need to start fortifying a lot of a lot of food products like grains and breads and cereals and things like that with folic acid because people get pregnant all the time and they may not know this, this folic acid is really important for preventing these neural tube defects. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the main reason. It was basically a public health measure. You know, it was twofold. I, I, the larger thing is that a lot of women do get pregnant without really realizing it. I mean, maybe they're planning to have a baby sometime. They're just not really pract- working on the timing, or it could be just completely unplanned. That's the main reason. I mean, and then also, quite frankly, there may be some women who do plan to get pregnant. Maybe their doctors tell them you need to get more folic acid, and they just don't manage to do it. So once once someone knows they're pregnant, what do you recommend? What kind of diet do you recommend they follow? 
Well, it's not. I'll a leave e- it at that. Yeah, yeah. Diet. yeah. I mean, I think, I, like I said in my blog post, I mean, a good healthy pregnancy diet is really not all that different from just a good healthy diet. You know, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, healthy proteins, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I'll give a shout out to eggs, which I've talked about before and I'm in favor of. But um, eggs are one of the best dietary sources of choline, and choline also does play a role in neural tube development. Um, I don't think it's quite as essential as folic acid, but it's up there. So, you know, I think if a woman's planning on, you know, getting pregnant, including whole eggs in, in the diet, if she likes them and isn't allergic to them, um, would be a good thing. Iron is another big one. The body needs so much iron during pregnancy. I mean, the woman, you know, the pregnant woman needs it because her blood supply is increasing. She's thickening her uterine wall. She's forming a placenta. You know, she's growing all this extra tissue, plus she's forming a new human being in her. So need for iron is really high. And if a woman comes into pregnancy being slightly iron deficient, which isn't uncommon because women lose blood every month when they have their menstrual period, and so unless you're making a point of compensating, it's it's common for a lot of women to be a little iron deficient, um, even if they don't have out-and-out iron deficiency anemia. If you come into pregnancy a little deficient, probably about, you know, really it's about the midpoint of pregnancy where the iron needs really start ramping up. It can be hard to catch up. So it's really, you know, ideal to make sure that you're, you know, if you're planning to become pregnant, know what your iron levels are, know if you need to be bumping them up. So you come into pregnancy just like really stocked up with it and good to go because it's interesting. During pregnancy, if a woman's not taking in enough iron, it's nature will try to protect the growing baby. So it'll start tapping into the mother's iron stores so it can make her really anemic and that's actually a very common complication of pregnancy is iron deficiency anemia you know she's just going to be tired i mean and i'm just thinking i think i said this in my post i just posted today i mean imagine you have a new baby and you're not getting enough sleep and you're tired and then you're anemic on top of it which makes you more tired not really the ideal way to begin motherhood yeah and plus the body's really really good at regulating the amount of iron so it's it would be difficult i think probably to eat too much iron like spinach or something you could eat you could eat plenty of it but another thing you mentioned in your blog post one of your blog posts is about eating for two (laughs) and uh how maybe that maybe a mischaracterization or a or a popular um i don't know what you call it popular myth a or myth, something an urban myth <laughs> only not just urban yeah like i said i don't know where that saying first came into being eating for two but it's been around forever and it is a total misconception i mean really during the first three months of pregnancy a woman doesn't need extra calories beyond what would be normal for her when she wasn't pregnant what's key in the first trimester is you know some specific nutrients i already mentioned folic acid and, and iron i mean really just not eating more calories at that point, but maybe making an extra effort to make sure the calories you are eating are really nutrient rich. Now, calorie needs do start to go up somewhat with the second trimester and it'll increase, but for most women, and off the top of my head, I think it was like 350 to 400 calories a day, which really isn't much. 
And it's not like double your meals, right? No, I mean, imagine, okay, let's say, let's say you're a woman who needs 1800 calories a day, you know, when you're not pregnant and you know, you're at that point, you're not gaining weight, you're not losing weight. That's normal for you. It's like, you don't start eating 3,600 calories a day when you get pregnant. Just no. So yeah, you're eating for like one and a fifth, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Although there definitely should be some weight gain, right? Like no matter, no matter whether you're underweight or if you're obese, I remember learning and I think I went to some uh, lecture during like the 2009 ADA conference and this guy was talking about obesity and, and pregnancy and how, you, yeah, you definitely, like, well, if you're obese, maybe you shouldn't gain too much, maybe 10 pounds, maybe 15 pounds during pregnancy, but you still should be gaining some weight. You definitely shouldn't try to go on a diet and lose a bunch of weight while you're pregnant. No, you don't want to go on a diet, and that's true. I mean, basically, there are, there are different weight gain range recommendations, and it is a range. It's not like a set number. Um, if you come into pregnancy underweight, you know, it's going to be recommended that you gain a little more weight. You know, if you're normal weight, it'll have a range. Overweight has a range. What's interesting, and I actually just learned this with the Food for Fertility class I was helping teach last Saturday, is when you get up into the range of morbidly obese, um, which would be a BMI, I think, above 35, the instructor I'm teaching with, Judy Simon, who has worked with a lot of women on fertility, has actually seen clients who are morbidly obese that actually do lose a little weight during pregnancy, and they are eating sufficient calories, but it was... In those situations, it's a situation where somebody was eating calories in such excess before they got pregnant mm. that they lower those calories and they're still eating enough calories and enough nutrition, but because they're eating less than they were, they do. So maybe they just pay a lot more attention to their diet yeah. when they're pregnant. So it's actually interesting, but I would imagine that a woman, if a woman is has that degree of obesity I mean hopefully she's not just working with her doctor hopefully she's working with a dietitian because there may be some things going on and that's something you would want guidance and monitoring for but yeah as a rule pregnancy is not the time to diet <laughs> weight some degree of weight gain is normal but you want it to be within a healthy range because gaining too much weight um, it can have some specific um, negative impacts you know, on the growing baby, but also there have been some studies that have found that women who gain a lot of weight with their pregnancy, they're more likely to retain some of those pounds even a few years after pregnancy. Mm. And if you have, say you're planning to have three or four kids and you gain a lot of weight with each pregnancy, and that means that you don't take all of it off. I mean, the cumulative weight gain could potentially be unhealthy over time. So I don't know a lot, I don't know too much about pregnancy and nutrition uh, myself, but I, I do remember I was in uh, one nutrition class one time and um, my professor had said something like, uh, evidence suggests that if you eat, pregnant woman eats omega-3 fatty acids while they're pregnant, it can have a effect on the child's IQ, meaning they'll be smarter. And um, I just thought this was wild I just this wild notion that omega-3 supplementation can affect a child's IQ you know so like right before we started recording I was looking it up just to see because I, I remembered him saying that but I ne I'd never checked his references or anything and there is like a couple of older studies published in uh, like 
psychology journals that do suggest that okay maybe uh, I think one one was one study was with cod liver oil and one was with just like uh, they gave um, women who had just had a baby like a questionnaire like a food frequency questionnaire yeah. about like what they what they ate and then they would give their child like a IQ test or memory test and that's obviously a thorny issue by itself about measuring intelligence mm-hmm. and that's kind of <laughs> I mean really controversial in and of itself right but there was there was a couple of studies that did suggest an association and then there was one study that said uh, no association at all I didn't know if have you run across any studies like that? Well, yeah, actually, um, there was a, a pretty good review article I just read recently, and they looked at specifically omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. And by that, we're talking about literally that supplementation, not necessarily intake of seafood, which naturally has omega-3 fatty acids. But really, the only p- positive outcome that's supported by research is that um, supplementing with omega-3s um, reduces the chance of having an early preterm birth before 34 weeks. Oh, really? They also looked at um, whether um, omega-3 supplementation improves the fetal or infant immune system, um, whether it prevents um, postpartum depression, uh, whether it, let's see, whether it prevents preeclampsia, which if anybody doesn't know what preeclampsia is, it's when a mother, a pregnant woman develops High, high blood pressure during pregnancy and also has high levels of protein in the urine and it can be very very dangerous um, for the mother and for the infant so yeah. of course they looked at that they thought well if it could help prevent this that would be fantastic uh, the evidence wasn't there and also cognitive development surprisingly it's really not there and I think possibly one of the issues there is exactly as you touched on how do you measure intelligence (laughs) and I've read last year I read a number of studies looking at um, not so much omega-3 supplementation but seafood intake and cognition because on a biochemical basis the components in this are very important for neurological development but sometimes you know just because they know how something works and then looking at how it plays out but, you know, these studies where they tried to look at the child's cognitive ability, there's all different ways of measuring it. It's So it's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges. Right. Yeah. Very controversial. Yeah. So you, it's not a slam dunk, basically. <laughs> you can't say, oh, yes, if you take these supplements, your yeah. child will be smart. You, you can't say that. The evidence is mixed at best, probably. Yes. But that brings me to, you know, diet and pregnancy can have profound effects on children and maybe even your children's children. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but there was a book published in 2007 called Survival of the Sickest by a guy. He has a funky name like Sharon or Sharon Moalem. And um, there was one chapter in there about how uh, a mother's diet during pregnancy can, can kind of activate or deactivate certain genes that will influence uh, their child's phenotype, um, specifically this... Uh, this chapter talked about like obesity, say if like a mother were to eat a nutrient poor diet that might be adequate in calories but didn't have a lot of nutrients, then that would like uh, activate certain genes via like DNA methylation and essentially tell that child's body to be thrifty and store every calorie they get. And so they would be predisposed to things like obesity, predisposed to diabetes and things like that and I wish I still had that book because now I want to go back and I want to check his references 
because I wasn't very skeptical at the time I, I read it. But again, before before we started recording, I did I was doing some kind of like a, a short lit review, and there is there does seem to be, according to a couple of articles that I looked at, there does seem to be some truth to this. Um, what do you think about that? Oh, there absolutely is some truth to it. Um, you know, and the whole field of epigenetics is just, it's exploding. And it's because now that we've mapped the human genome and, you know, when the human, in, in the process of mapping the human genome, there was this thought that we're going to be able to identify all these genes and we're going to be able to, you know, relate them to chronic diseases, all these things that happen in people. And it's not that simple. And one of the reasons is, just because you have a gene for something doesn't mean that gene has been activated. You know, it could be basically flipped off and never kind of come to realization in the body. So what they realize now with the epigenome is things that happen to us or experiences we have through the lifespan, and that certainly starts in utero, which is a very sensitive time in our lifelong development, things can happen, and and these things could be what nutrients you are exposed to or deprived of, um, stress, toxins, lots of things can determine whether certain genes are flipped on or flipped off, and that can have profound consequences, not just for the baby who becomes a child who becomes an adult, but potentially also that child's offspring, and maybe even beyond that. So there was this paper, it, this, is a, this is a review, it's called Nutrition, Epigenetics, and Developmental Plasticity, Implications for Understanding Human Disease, published in the Annual Review of Nutrition, and there does seem to be quite a few uh, like studies with rats, they mentioned, they looked at like several generations down the line, and you know, like in a, a one environmental stimulus, and, and one of the mothers can affect several generations of, of their offspring. And there's even human studies. Now I'm having trouble finding it. Anyways. Well, I mean, I, let's see. One human study, probably the most famous one, um, came out of the Dutch famine in World War II. They've done a lot of research looking at survivors of that. The Dutch famine um, happened, oh, I believe it was late 1944, early 1945, and the Nazis basically cut off food supply to much of Holland because Holland, they refused to participate in their activities. Um, And so basically what they looked at is what happened to children who were in utero, so their mothers were pregnant with them during that famine. Um, There's been a lot of research looking at not just what happened, but specifically, were they in their first trimester when the famine happened, the second trimester, third trimester? I mean, just looking at the relative importance of the different areas of pregnancy. And what they found was that, you know, children who were still in utero during the famine had increased risk of obesity and and a lot of chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And you know, what's interesting is in, instinctively you would maybe think that if a woman was eating too much during pregnancy and maybe had a big baby, that that baby might be more prone to obesity and maybe diabetes because obesity is often tied to type 2 diabetes. But interestingly, if you're deprived of nutrients while you're still in your mother's uterus and, and especially if you're small, you know, compared to what you should be, 
you know, a low birth weight baby, you're more at risk of obesity because you were basically, your primary window of development happened in very austere, deprived conditions. And so, you know, so imagine it's the Dutch famine, your mother's pregnant with you, she's not getting enough nutrition, you're not getting enough nutrition, you're born into a world where that's no longer a problem. And the post-World War II era specifically was a boom for a lot of people. So you're born into a world where you get enough food and what, what you developed to expect is very different than what you get. And I, I, I just heard recently that they think that may be one reason why um, rates of heart disease went up, especially among men. All these men that were still inside their mothers during the famine or during, re, or during the depression even, relatively lean times. Yeah, that's what I, I wanted to get to. I can't. I still can't find it. But, I know. I uh, hate searching for that one thing. I know I saw it. I was it. looking for a picture, but I remember now that yeah, the the studies they did on rats, they reduced the the amount of nutrients in their diet, but I still think they they kept an adequate diet calorically for these rats, and then the the uh, the offspring of these rats were uh, after weaning, they were like uh, they had hypertension and and obesity and um, a whole host of uh, diseases. They were more prone to cancer and these types of things. So yeah, if the if the human um, response is at all analogous to that, it would definitely have a huge impact on things like heart disease or, or cancer or obesity or something like that. Actually, something interesting specifically with the hypertension, and this actually ties into kidney disease, is if, if a baby is small for gestational age um, because they're not getting enough nutrients or the mother's underweight and so there's re- growth restriction in, in utero, they're more prone for hypertension and kidney problems and the reason is the filtration units of the kidneys, the nephrons, when you're born, you have all you're ever gonna get of those. And so if you're a small baby, you know, you're low birth weight, you know, you're kind of forming, you're growing, and nature is saying, oh, well, you're pretty small, so you only need this number. Well, you know, say you're born, and you get enough nutrition, and you catch up, or maybe even become obese, which is worse, the Mm -hmm. strain you're putting on your kidneys, which were not built to accommodate, they're built to accommodate what they think is going to essentially be a small person, not a normal-sized person. And so if your kidneys aren't working right, then that directly contributes to hypertension. And of course, hypertension contributes to other cardiovascular (laughs) disease and stroke and so on and so on. Yep. So I think bottom line, yet again, try to eat a healthy diet. Minimize your processed foods if you can. Lots of fruits and vegetables if you can. When you're pregnant or you're not pregnant, whatever, it's just good overall right and yeah and coming back to epigenetics and whether things can carry on through the generations um what's interesting is when when a woman is born when she's a little baby girl female the females of our species are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have and basically the eggs are eggs are the female's genetic material so if something happens while a female is in in utero and some epigenetic switches get flipped those can stay flipped. Those, you know, those are also encoded not just in her own DNA, but in the DNA she's carrying for a future generation, i.e. her eggs. That's how it gets passed on. 
Now what's interesting is they used to think this was just a phenomenon of female to female to female down the generations. It can happen with men too. And there was one review article I was reading where they found that, that the paternal grandfather's experience of food availability during childhood was associated with the grandchild's mortality risk. Say that one more time. Okay. Say, say your grandfather um, experienced food shortage while he was a child. Mm-hmm. Not in utero necessarily, but a child. That could increase your risk of premature death, death before you normally would right. die. So, you know, I just, you know, a message out there to parents, I mean, not just, it's not just important not to... Not just for you. Yeah. But for your kids and yeah. your kids' kids. Yeah, it's true. Right. I mean, you know, like I said, pregnancy is a window of opportunity to really optimize the health of your future child. But childhood is, you know, there's a lot of growth and development going on during childhood. It's also very important. Right. Little, you're forming little people that are going to be our future generation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Exactly. Is there anything else you wanted to get in before I sign off? No, just encouraging would-be parents out there to plan for pregnancy. It will be better for you, better for your child. Optimal health. Yep. Always good things to try for. Yes, exactly. Let me have some of your medicine. Let me have some of that serum that is